the thought and affirmed that the end of the age was not upon us, but there are many, many events that we went through, at least a few of them, in the Bible to show have to happen before the end of this age can come. That they could not have happened in this past week and all been done because some of them are dated to be three and a half years or nearly a year and a half long and so on. So, at bare minimum, there have to be between five and ten years, or seven and ten, however you want to do, more than five, uh, for those events to play out. And some of the things may take a while. So, it is still a ways off. I got to reflecting a little this morning. The Nostradamus missed this one. Edgar Casey missed it. The Mayans, if they had any clue at all about it, missed it. Uh, and perhaps they didn't. It was just the end of that time cycle of their calendar, and uh, those who made it up probably didn't really much care uh, beyond that because they weren't going to live that long, and their civilization didn't, for that matter. Uh, I did see an interesting cartoon the other day. showed a picture of the Mayan calendar and of an Oreo cookie. And they looked quite similar And it says, the Mayan calendar said, the end of the world is upon us, but the Oreo cookie says, it's okay. So I told Marla, she she loves Oreos, she hadn't eaten any in a long, long, long time, but so I'm going to get a case of Oreo cookies for Friday, and uh, she says, and bring pizza too. So uh, it didn't happen, did it? It didn't happen. Now there was a great deal of hullabaloo on the internet around the world about the various reasons Planet X was supposed to hit. It didn't come either. Uh, many, many different postulations were out there about why this would happen or what would cause it. But the consensus was it would happen yesterday regardless of what the cause was. Sunspots or what, you know, pick your poison. Now some may wise up and realize that the ideas they had were wrong. Others will keep their pet theories about how this is going to happen. They'll just set a date a little later down the road. That we, that we used to do in the church decades ago, is just set another date. I hope we've wised up enough not to do that. But it struck me this morning that they might pick another one real soon. Why not Christmas is the time of the Antichrist and the beginning of the end? You've got Satan Claus coming up here in three days, and he will be jolly and happy and a bringer of light and merriness and happiness and joy and gifts. And it's Satan's day, not Christ's day, even though the Catholics call it the Mass of Christ. So there's a good one to pick. Then you only have to wait three days. Then you have to pick another one, I suppose. I say this half in jest, but what day would Satan like to commemorate more than the one that the world, well, the Christian so-called world, celebrates anyway about him being the bringer of light? This year, next year, I don't know. have no idea, really. Furthermore, I don't really care. What about God? You know, people have all kinds of fears about a lot of different things. 
It is the nature of people to live in fear. And most of the time we fear things that will never happen. We worry about things that will not occur. Just like a lot of worry was put out about Y2K, a lot of worry was put out about uh, yesterday. It did not occur. Now, I have been going back to Isaiah 7, 8, 9, and through this section a lot lately. And uh, I'm going to go back to Isaiah 8 again this morning, or this afternoon. Maybe I'm beginning to sound like Herbert Armstrong in the Two Trees, because he began almost every message with that for several years. Uh, but there are some things that are very important for us. As I said, so many people fear. In fact... It is part of being human to fear. We get insecure about a lot of things. Well, what really should we be petrified about? What should we be scared about? Planet X? Should that be our what scares us? Should it be the Nephilim, the half-human, half Demon giants that are proposed or supposed to be out there that are going to invade the earth and get us. The zombies, that's brought up a lot. Talk radio and the internet are just a buzz with all this stuff. Is it truly something to be scared of? I think we need to ask that question. And I've covered this before, but I want to talk about it a little more today. Now, he says here in chapter 8, verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So there is, in truth, a danger coming. And this is talking about the plot back in chapter 7 between Syria and the Jews against Ephraim. And Samaria was part of the northern ten tribes, or uh, was the capital of the northern ten tribes, including Ephraim and Manasseh. So, there definitely is an invasion coming. There's no doubt about that. God has told us in many places that he is going to destroy Israel here at the end time. Maybe that ought to really scare us. talks about the king of Assyria and all his glory in the middle of verse 7. And then God tells all these nations to assemble themselves in verse 9, to build an association or a coalition or form a conspiracy or whatever word you want to use in there allies, and come against us, and they will be broken in pieces. Verse 10, take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Now, he's speaking of the church here, and he says that, yes, These nations, this nation, will be taken away. It will be taken into captivity. But God is with us. God with us is Emmanuel in English. 
I don't see anything to worry about, do you? It says in verse 12, Neither fear you their fear. Maybe the sermon is over for today. Just reading that should be enough so that we don't worry anymore, so that we do not fear anymore, because we have a world out here that is full of fear. And all kinds of theories, some of them partially Bible-based by people who do not really understand the Bible, part of them based on other things. And people get all frightened about it, all worried about it. And they have, frankly, pretty good reason to fear some things, like an invasion or our own leadership selling us out to invading armies and us being betrayed by treasonous acts, which Jeremiah 50 and 51 say will happen. So they do have a great deal to fear. But he tells us, the church, those who follow Emmanuel, God with us, not to fear their fear, nor be afraid. Now that is instruction from God to his church. And he tells us, don't get agitated, don't get worried, do not be afraid of what is coming. Now, that is direct instruction from Almighty God. So, when you worry about these things, and when you fear them and dread them, you are disobeying God. It shows you do not trust God, nor have faith in God, or the love of God. Because perfect love casts out fear. Love is obedience to God's laws. And if you have perfect obedience, then you cannot have fear. Because it is our own sins, our own faults, our own failings as church members that create the fears within us. We fear we won't make it. We fear we're not up to scratch. We fear because we still have sins, faults, problems, and weaknesses, we won't make it. But God has said He is very forgiving and merciful and compassionate and describes the type of love He has for us. And He tells us, fear not, little flock, for it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So, Old Testament, New Testament, it does not matter where we go in the Scripture. The message is the same. Do not fear. Quit it. Stop it. Don't go there. Do I need to continue to talk along these lines? There are some in the church of God who live in fear of all these things that are about to come to pass. 
because they do not trust God with their lives completely. Now, they may not fear to some degree as much as others do because they know there is a God, but it is a very real thing. And I hear it around. The people are worried about all these things. Some people get really paranoid, and I'm talking about church members about all this stuff that's supposedly going to come down and didn't. But all they'll do is reset the date. They won't change their beliefs about some of these things. One of the greatest is the Nephilim thing, the half-demon and half-human, based on a very obscure scripture in Genesis 6 about giants marrying women. Very unclear exactly what it's talking about. But they just assume that that means that demons came and married women and had children, and they're half-human and half-demon. I submit to you that Christ said, No, the angels in heaven do not marry or are not given in marriage. And marriage includes sex. It just doesn't make sense, brethren. I hope we can get that and not be influenced by those who think otherwise. Let me pose a situation for you. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. And He wants everybody to be happy. He tells us in the world tomorrow we will have no fears, no sorrows, no worries, no tears. That everything will be wonderful. Now, a God with that mindset, would he create beings, angels, with the capacity for physical sexual relations, with the gear for it, with the desire for it, and then tell them, you have eternal life, you will live forever, with frustrated desires. Is that a God of love? You will be in this condition forevermore. That sounds more like hell than heaven to me. Now, I know right now, because of various circumstances and where we are, many right here, or having to live single, or live celibate for other various reasons. And it's not much fun. But it's only for a small, short period of time, and it will be resolved. But think of the frustrations that come and go with that. And how nice would it be to live with that thought forevermore? I do not believe that God created the angels with that kind of capacity and then told them, no, no. If that is a work of God, I do not want to be there. Thank you very much. But I don't believe that is the God of creation. I don't believe he would do that to millions of beings. 
Therefore, there has to be a different explanation for Genesis 6. I'm sorry. There are not half-human, half-spirit beings out there that are going to invade the earth. Isn't it enough that Satan and his demons are going to be cast down and influence men to destroy life on earth without having to imagine half-demon giants? Now, I've addressed this before, but I think after yesterday it needs to be perhaps addressed again once and for all. It didn't happen like they said it would. And it's not going to happen that way anyway. So Planet X and Nephilim do not need to be a concern. And really, in another sense, what difference does it make what they are? All human? Half demon? All demon, what difference does it make to you and me? None. Whatever it is that is going to kill off most of mankind is going to do it. And it doesn't matter who they are if God turns them loose on us. Let's go to Matthew 10, verse 28 for a moment. And let's see where our dread and our fear should be. Matthew 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body. And it doesn't matter who they are, demon, half-demon, or man. Don't fear anybody that can kill the body, in other words. But are not able to kill the soul. But rather, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna fire. Now there's where our fear and our dread needs to be. God controls both human and eternal life. In Job's case, he told Satan, have at him, just don't kill him. Do you think after Satan got done with Job and had put all the misery and torture upon him that he could, he would not have killed him had he been allowed to? Oh, God controlled physical life there on this earth and did not let Satan, the devil, who's worse than half human and half demon, he's all demon. He did not let him kill Job. He stopped it even though he sicked him on him to start with. But he was the one who set the boundaries. So it doesn't matter who might come after us. And you can imagine all kinds of things and read things in the Scripture if you want to, but it's clear God has got beings, human beings are bad enough, who will destroy the body unless God protects even the human life and body, which we'll get to. But he totally controls eternity. Now, there's somebody to fear. There's somebody to curry the favor of. There's somebody, if you want to polish boots, to polish on. 
There's somebody to get close to. There's somebody to get to know. There's somebody to talk to a lot and pray. That is, ask his favor and his protection. Because he holds the keys of eternal life. Now, there's the one to be afraid of. Gehenna fire will not last long, but we see there in Luke a description of someone who was left out of the kingdom of God, and there was this great gulf between Lazarus in the kingdom of God and him going into fire, and it was not a pleasant description there. I am going to spend my time concerned about God Almighty and spend very, very little time, hopefully none, worrying about space invasions and planets colliding and all of that stuff that people on radio and Internet fear and write books about. Why? Why go to that bother? Why go to that argita, that emotional frustration? Why fear things we do not need to fear? Life's hard enough without living in fear of things that we don't need to fear. And not fearing God enough. That same context we covered some last year or last week back in Isaiah, where he says, To the law and the testimony. Maybe I will review that with a little bit different light here today. I read it last week, verse 16 of chapter 8, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. God gives His Spirit to them that obey. If we will follow His laws, we have nothing to worry about or to fear. It's that simple. And this testimony that is in this book, this that we're reading right now, is not the law, but it's the testimony of Christ. And He's telling us what's coming down. He tells us there's an association coming against Israel, and that it will destroy Israel, but we don't have to fear it if we will cling to the laws of God and the things that God tells us in this book, this testimony of Him. We have nothing to worry about. It says, I'll wait on the Eternal and look for Him, and that those that He works with will be signs and wonders from God who dwells in Mount Zion. Christ is coming to dwell in Zion here at the end. We've been over that many times. He says the church, along with the two witnesses, will be in Zion, and he will come and dwell with them before going back to his Father's throne in heaven and coming for the first resurrection. Now, lest somebody say, well, if they say he's in the desert, don't believe it. He's talking about something else there. But he does say he's coming to dwell with. Now, maybe that's not visibly. I do not know. And that would fit in with, if he says he's in the desert, he's not. He's right here today. Do you believe that? Christ, Emmanuel, is right here in this room today. 
In the opening prayer, it was asked that he be here. And I believe that. I believe when we ask him to be here, he will be here. So he's in the desert. But if we were on the mountaintop, we'd make the same prayer and he'd be on the mountaintop. So that one scripture does not limit other circumstances. And as I've said before, he was in the desert with Paul after this was written for three and a half years teaching him. So if somebody had said at that time Christ is out in the desert with Paul, it would have been true. But because of context and the meaning, it would not have been a contradiction of what had been written in the four Gospels. So let's always understand context. It is important. And then he said, just do not listen to the prophets of this world. They bring not this doctrine, as I quoted from Second John last week, do not let them in your house, see, or your radio, or your internet, and listen to them, or read what they have to say. Look to the law of God and the testimony. I hope we're getting this. I hope that I don't have to read it over and over and over again. I hope we understand we need to have our heads in God's Word, not in prognostications for people who do not truly know God and who are influenced by Satan in his churches. We are not to listen to ministers of the world. The Bible is very, very clear about that because they don't bring this doctrine. But some in the church persist and think that that's okay because they're not talking about prophecy or demons. They're talking themselves into angels of light. And what they sound may say okay in some circumstances, but there's always a twist. There's always a little misunderstanding, and it will lead you away from the true God and His true love. Those who speak of love do not even know what it is. They don't read the Apostle John, where he says it's the keeping of the commandments, because invariably they believe the commandments are done away with. You cannot preach the love of God and believe the commandments are done away with. It is impossible. Impossible. So the love they are describing is not godly love. I don't care if they do use Greek words. Now, I'm talking about Protestants and Catholics here, not people in the church. Don't get me wrong. Let's understand. Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Steve Quayle gave me some of his books he had written last time I saw him about Nephilim and giants and all that stuff. He was so excited about them. It's just garbage. He is a flaming Protestant. He does not know God at all. And the Satan that he thinks is coming to invade that he's so afraid of is the one he worships and doesn't know it. Now, 
and all of those others of the same ilk. They do not speak to the law of God and his testimony. Do not fear them. Doesn't it say back, is it Ezekiel? They have, or Jeremiah, if they have these prophecies and then they don't come to pass, don't listen to them, don't fear them. Well, yesterday was one of the big ones. Don't listen, don't fear, don't worry. Since that one didn't work, they'll find another one. Why don't they just read the Bible and see what God says? Let us be warned, brethren. Maybe most of us, this is falling on deaf ears because we don't go there anyway. But I do know that these things can affect you if you start reading them. If you start reading a bunch of stuff about something that is false, sooner or later, it will get you. It will get you. And it's scary. There are people that go into a lot of different things that are not backed up by the Bible and think, well, I'll just get what I can out of this. But then the first thing you know, it gets to them. And then they're going a different direction than what this book talks about. It happens with any subject you want to name. If you get into the things that men have written and men have postulated, and they won't fit this book. Now, I have read a lot of scriptures to you over the last, especially 16 years, and a lot of them haven't happened yet. But I'll tell you what, the things that I'm reading are right here in this book. They're right here in this book. So they're going to happen. Now, I've only been doing it for about 16 years. But God wrote these words thousands of years ago. Now, because these things have not happened in thousands of years, shall we start questioning God too? Now, he said they're like the waters of Noah to him. They will come to pass. But he has never, ever told us when. Now, we can speculate a little. We can have ideas. We can watch certain things and see. But if we start setting dates and trying to figure all of that out and then say, ah, this is exactly when this is going to happen, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. It's okay to look at things. It's okay to wonder if they're close. And Christ even said that. He says, when you see the leaves coming on the tree, know that the end is near. And we see a lot of leaves on this end time tree now. So it's near. But what good does it do to worry about exactly when. All we have to do is follow the law and the testimony that is set before us in this book. And then when really matters not. Near is important to us, however. Near is important because it excites, uh, motivates, inspires, helps us to be motivated to do what we need to do so that we can be included in those who are protected. So it's not wrong to speculate. It's not wrong to look at things and say it's getting close. It must be getting closer. Maybe it's at the very door. 
That is okay because it's motivating. When I read some of the things that are going on in the world, it makes me want to go pray. It motivates me to get closer to God. Now, that's what really counts. Not getting, not scaring yourself. You know, you, you can go to scary movies and get scared if, if you really like being scared. But that's not the kind of scared we need to have. The kind of scared we need to have is our Father in heaven and His Son. And the ones that can give us eternal life or put us in Gehenna fire. Fear Him. That is where our dread should be. Isaiah 8 is packed. It's packed with, well, 7 and 8, 9, 10. They're packed with promise of protection for those who will obey God, and they're packed with worry and dread and fear for those who won't. So this is a good place to come. And forgive me if I come here often, but uh, I think it's a, a good start, a good place to go to get our perspective when we begin to lose it a little bit. Notice in Revelation chapter 1. Here he begins to describe Christ. Uh, This is a message given to the Apostle John that he was to pass along. It's the revelation of Christ, not the revelation of St. John the Divine, no matter what your book says at the top of it. Let's see, where do I want... uh, It describes him here in uh, the midst of the candlesticks, the churches, in verse 13 and on down. It talks about his hair and his head were white like wool, his eyes a flame of fire, and gives a powerful description of a very powerful being. Uh, He has the keys of life and death. Now notice... Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. Now, we've seen in other places that his word is like a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. There is someone to fear, whose mouth is a two-edged sword. He has power. And when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as dead. In other words, just this vision of Christ in his glory was enough to make John fall down as if he were dead. It scared him, as we say, to death, or half to death, depending on what expression you want to use. But he chooses to say, it scared me to death. I fell as dead. Now, there's someone to fear. And he laid his right hand upon me. In other words, he chose John. He said, I have come to you, laid his hand on him, saying to me, fear not. I am the first and the last. Now, why does he tell him this? He tells us to fear him and for him to be our dread. 
We just read it in Matthew 10 and Isaiah 8 and other places. Why is he telling John not to fear? Because he is about to reveal to John the things that Isaiah 7 and 8 are talking about. He is about to show him a vision of armies and men and trumpets and woes and plagues and all kinds of things that are going to happen at the end of the age. And he said, don't fear what you are about to see. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I was here at the beginning, I'll be here at the end. So you don't need to fear what I'm about to show you about the end. And that does not contradict fear me or have dread for me. Now, the Apostle John is the one of the apostles that Christ had the greatest affinity for, perhaps loved the very most, had great affection for. And you will notice in the writing of John that he is the one that talks about love the most of all of them by far. And he also is the one who by far makes it clear that the love of God is the keeping of the commandments because they show goodwill and good service to God and goodwill and good service to men. And after all that had been written, By all the apostles, including he who wrote many things hard to be understood, as Peter put it about Paul, after all that had been written, John wrote his last three Gospels, mostly about keeping the commandments to show the love of God. And at the end of this book of Revelation, the parting shot is keep the laws of God and you will be part of the kingdom of God. He makes it very clear. If anything is unclear in Galatians or somewhere, Paul, I mean, John makes it quite clear. (coughs) And he is the one whom Christ chose to give this message. So what we are reading right here in Revelation 1 is no different whatsoever than what we just read in Isaiah 8 and Matthew 10 and could go to many scriptures about and read the same thing. We don't necessarily need to go there and see all those today, but they're there. Now, Matthew 24, we addressed this some last week. I want to hit it a little bit differently today. He does talk here in verse 7 about nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And so there will be war, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in different places. Those things are happening more and more and more right now. They're in the news daily. We're getting very, very close to this time. And that that will be the beginning of sorrows. But the end will not come yet then there's going to be a persecution and a killing of the people of God. That is coming. 
So, should we get all worried? Now, I wrote down quite a few different scriptures here that tells us. Uh, let me let me just quickly go through a few of those. Uh, Isaiah 8, verse 4. Before the child that Isaiah was to have would be able to cry, Daddy and Mommy, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. End time prophecy about our nation, the nations of Israel, that the Assyrian will lead a coalition of people against us. It's coming against the United States of America, Britain, and Western Europe, and uh, the places where Israel is. And make no mistake where Israel is. That can easily be proved. It's easy to get away from that proof and begin to believe other things, but it's not so. Uh, chapter 9, verse 11. Therefore the Eternal shall set up, set up the adversaries of Rezin against him and join his enemies together. God is going to see to it that a coalition or an alliance is made between the enemies or among the enemies of Israel. The Syrians before, the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth like eating breakfast. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So God is going to ascend this coalition of people against our nation. Chapter 10, verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. I'll send them against a hypocritical nation, and the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, and so on. This is repeated many, many times. I want to skip back to Micah. Because the minor prophets do give a description of what would be happening in the church, as we well know, but it also gives the second fulfillment, and that is what will happen to the nations. Let's go to Micah 5. Uh, And here I want down about (coughs) verse 2. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me that is to be a ruler in Israel. So this has to be speaking of the church, spiritual Israel at the end. Uh, Verse 3, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth. Many places speak of spiritual Israel being like a travailing woman trying to give birth and having trouble with it. Uh, So she is going to bring forth the Christ child in terms of her character, her preparedness, and he will come and dwell with her. So it's like, in that sense, giving birth. It's the analogy he uses. The remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Many, many scriptures speak of a gathering here at the end. And it talks about a leader. In verse 5 it says, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise up against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall be he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. God is going to raise up the church, not the American military, 
because America will be destroyed by the Assyrian and her allies. But he will set the church against the Assyrian. He says it will be like in the days of Gideon in another place, where they will destroy themselves. He talks about it there in Isaiah, oh, where is it, about 20... Somewhere between 22 and 29, I just read it recently. Talks about how the Assyrians turned upon themselves and killed each other and 140,000 died. There are so many things in the past like this. But here he says, the church will do it. Doesn't he talk about the two witnesses and how fire will come out of their mouth and destroy their enemies who try to kill them? And here it's a conflict that when they come into the land, they'll destroy the land, but they're not going to get God's church. Those who are faithful to Him. He will take care of them. He will provide. The book of Nahum, again, leading up to Haggai and Zechariah and the work of the end-time church and the two witnesses, talks about how the Assyrian is going to come into the land. Verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep your solemn feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So the destruction of the nation is coming, but this is referring back to Isaiah 40, a voice crying in the wilderness and publishing peace and saying the church, the faithful remnant, will have peace and the Assyrian will not be able to destroy them. Why is this here in the middle of a book of Nahum about destruction of the nations and it talks about the church and the ministry of the church? And finally, the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrian. The book of Habakkuk talks about the same thing. I won't go there. Zephaniah tells us to gather before the financial crash and the decree of destruction comes down upon us there in chapter 2. But as it goes on down, it talks about the Assyrian in verse 13, and so on. <clears throat> and how it dwelt carelessly, and how it will be destroyed. But he says down in chapter 3, verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. New King James says, a meek and humble people. And then Haggai goes into describing how a remnant of the church is going to be brought together to do the end-time work of God. And Zechariah shows that they will have a covert and a wall of fire around them to protect them from all that is coming down. What are we so worried about? Why do we worry? Let's go back to Matthew 24 for a moment here. They'll deliver the church up to be afflicted and kill it. I can go to Daniel 9, Daniel 11, where it talks about how they will rise above the holy people, and many of them of understanding will fall. There will be a great persecution from men. Why worry about Nephilim? Men are going to do it. That's bad enough. They can kill the soul too, the body. 
Or not the soul, but the body, I mean. There'll be a great falling away, and iniquity will abound, and the love of many shall wax cold. Notice how he brings iniquity and love together here. Iniquity or sin or breaking of the commandments means that love decreases. It goes away. <coughs> you cannot separate the love of God from the commandments of God. They define love. His definition of love. <clears throat> but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Not committing iniquity, and therefore the love not going away, is proper endurance. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. It is yet to be done. It is not to be done to, by the remnant, the splinters of the church. It will be done against the, by the end-time church gathered at Zion and Jerusalem, and the two witnesses will be the ones doing the majority of the preaching. Everyone else will be a light to the world of obedience to God and show how He will bless when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. In other words, it is easy to misunderstand what the abomination is. It is easy to understand or misunderstand where the holy place is. Otherwise, it would not be written this way. That which is obvious to the world will not be seen by the world. I mean, they'll see what is obvious to them. They will not see the truth. They will not understand. It is hidden. Then let them which be in Judea, maybe they don't know where the true Judea is either, flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. In other words, this is a time to be very deeply concerned. It is coming and coming fast. So do not delay. When you see that abomination set up in the holy place in the true Judea, and you see armies gathered, then you leave in a hurry. Woe to them that are with child. If you're pregnant, it's hard to move fast. To them that give suck in those days, having a little child makes it very difficult as well. But pray that your flight not be in bad weather or on the Sabbath. Both are difficult. We're supposed to be resting on the Sabbath, not running. And in bad weather or cold weather, it's difficult as well. So he said, pray about these things ahead of time. You know what? Given a chance, Satan would have us all about eight, nine months pregnant or carrying a little child and do it when there's a foot of snow on the ground. That would be his preference. That's what he would try to do. So he says, pray about this and ask that God give you 
good conditions because this is a life-threatening situation. For then shall be great tribulation, such as were not since the beginning of the world of this time, nor ever shall be. And so bad that no flesh would be saved alive if God didn't stop it. But he says he will. For the elect's sake, he will cut it short, and there will be flesh saved alive. I guess it's, is it Luke 21 that tells us, uh, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape these things. That's where I started, isn't it, today? Let God be your fear. Let God be your dread. Pray to Him. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for mercy. Ask for help in overcoming. Because those that overcome are going to be the ones who are protected and taken care of by God. He tells all seven churches to overcome. That is incumbent upon us all, not just whoever you think it's talking about. It means the whole church needs to overcome, to grow, to draw near to God, so that they can be protected from all these things that are about to come. We did not need to worry yesterday one whit, because it wasn't coming. And even when it is coming, we have nothing to fear if we're trusting God obeying Him, and serving Him, and loving Him. Perhaps that's a good place to stop for today right there. I have a lot more to say, a little bit different direction. Maybe that can wait until next week, but hopefully we can get it through not only our heads, but through our hearts, brethren, that we don't need to worry about anything, really, except obey God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. If we do that and pray and trust in faith that the eternal God of creation will take care of us if we do our part, then we have nothing to fear except fear itself. We do not need to be worried. We do not need to be nervous. We can watch world events. We can watch these things coming, the new world order developing. We can watch the beast beginning to come together. We can watch all these things that the Bible says will happen. And why did he put them there for us? So that we could look at them. So that we could watch them. So we could understand what is about to happen. But then he tells us, don't worry about it, just like he told John. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you some awful things, John. Fear not. I was here at the beginning. I'll be here at the end. You do not need to be worried. I will take care of you. So let us live in faith and in hope, not in fear.